So I have three little kids. Uh, They're little, but they're getting older. Uh, And my wife and I, it seems like most of the time, in some way or another, we are talking about the fact that our kids are getting older, that they're growing every single day, it seems, that they're on the cusp of adolescence. Like, we're not there yet, but we are really close. And yet, they're still little kids. They are still children at heart in every way. And so we still play very childlike games in our home. My kids love to play hide-and-go-seek. In our home, we play this seems weekly, uh, and they often try and pull me in. The problem is we live in a very small house, and I am not very small. And so there's like two or three places I can actually hide. And my kids know right where they are. They know where to find me, what to expect when they go looking. And if I get lucky and actually find a place they don't know where to find me, they're outraged. Like it's an injustice. And so they immediately yell for me to make a sound, like somehow reveal myself, because they expect to find me there. On the other hand, when we're on road trips, they still play I Spy, which I love because when you're grasping at some bit of dignity, you know, some bit of sanity on a drive, it can buy you a few minutes. And so we play I Spy. I enjoy hide and seek. I hate I Spy. Like, if I'm being honest, I really hate I Spy because uh, I never win at I Spy. I'm always the one who's guessing. And usually whatever I'm trying to find was on a sign outside three miles back, right? And so it's long gone. Or they, whatever it is I think I have found, once they realize I found it, they, on, on, you know, like that, change. And it's actually not that blue thing. It's this other blue thing I just thought of. And so I never actually find it. I don't know what I'm looking for. I'm absolutely helpless in trying to find it. And usually I'm frustrated and don't actually find that thing. These are silly examples, but I was thinking of it this week because I feel like in much of our Christian life, in much of our life with God, it can feel a bit like a game of I spy more than it can hide and seek. We, as human beings, we long for God. We long to see him, to know him, to to find him, and we search for him. And yet so often, rather than this familiar and predictable game of hide and seek, where we know who we're looking for and what we're looking for, it can feel elusive. It can feel like the ground shifting under our feet. And in some ways, that's a universal human experience. You read John's gospel, and in John's gospel, you find people all the way back thousands of years ago, searching, desperately looking and longing for God. And yet, the only way in which they actually find him is when he makes a step towards them, when he makes himself known. So much of human history has been this quest to find that which we don't even know how to find, don't even know what we're looking for. Yet to be human is to long for God. To be human is to seek after him. As St. Augustine very famously said, our hearts as humans are restless until they rest in God, until they rest in you. And so we search and we long and we've just come through the Advent and the Christmas season, which is a season that focuses on searching, that focuses on longing for God, seeking after him. And the beauty of Christmas, the whole heart of the story is that that which we would not know otherwise comes and makes himself known to us. He reveals himself to us, enters into the mess and the dirt and the brokenness the frailty of our humanity, so that we can be found, so that we can know him. And as we come out of that season, as we said a few weeks ago, epiphany then, it's the amplification of the significance of the incarnation. And so we say, not only is this babe revealing to us who God is for a few select people, the ancient people of Israel, as we just heard in our reading, he comes to take away the sins of the world. It's cosmic in its scope. And therefore, it affects you and me. And so that longing, that inescapable, unshakable longing that we have to find God 
is actually possible because he draws near to us. He comes to us in Jesus. And so really the whole of John's gospel then focuses on this question, this longing. What does it mean to follow God and how can we follow him once he reveals himself to him? It's a fairly long reading we just had. There's a lot we could focus on. If you're following along, verses 37, 38, and 39 are really what I want us to focus on. Because there you see two questions and a response to a question. And those are the heart of everything I want to say. Two questions and then Jesus' response. The first is a question that Jesus asks these early disciples. He says, what are you looking for? What are you looking for? And then they respond to him, where are you staying? Where are you staying? And then he says, come and see. It's a three-part movement through this reading that I think is really significant for us as we follow Jesus today. And so let's just dive in. First question Jesus asks, what are you looking for? I think at a very basic level, this is a fundamental question of existence. Yes, there is a historic context. There's an immediate reality that he's speaking to. But the reason we read a verse like this thousands of years later and immediately resonate with it is because Jesus is asking a question that speaks to the core of what it means to be a human being. What are you looking for? What do you long for in your life? What do you long to be true? What do you give yourself to? Where do you hope to find meaning and purpose and believe that the things you're doing actually in some way are building towards something meaningful and purposeful and significant? This is the heart of the Alpha Course. I think Chris last week spoke about the Alpha Course. The heart of Alpha is to create space to ask that question with other people who are asking the same question. What are you looking for? What do you long for in life? That's what Alpha is about, to go and sit with other people who also are wondering that, and not just in an abstract sense, but are wondering, might Jesus have something to say to it? Might Jesus actually in some way help to answer that fundamental question of longing, of of what we desire? And so that's the beautiful thing that Jesus does in this. He asks this question, but he, he turns it back on himself. It's a bit rhetorical. In saying, what are you looking for? He's very clearly saying, in what way do you think I might be able to answer that question? In what way am I the answer to the longings of your heart, to the things that you desire? And that's why we go to Alpha. We sit and we eat meals and we talk with people who are also wondering, might Jesus have an answer to this inescapable longing that I have? Because that's what it means to be human. To be a human is to have that longing. Sometimes we don't feel it or we don't realize it because we're very good at distracting ourselves. And so we watch more Netflix and we spend more time on our phone and we are constantly finding ways to entertain and stimulate ourselves. But if just for a minute we could turn it off and pause, we might actually let those questions rise to the surface. Those questions would rise to the surface and we would see, I'm not unique. Just like every human being, I long to know the answer to that question. Is there more to life than this? Is there in some way, a way in which Jesus answers that question of meaning and of purpose. I think the disciples are so caught off guard, frankly, by what Jesus says. They don't know how to answer because they, like us, I think have spent much of their lives playing a game of I spy. The early gospels feel a bit like I spy. We, we know there are promises and longings in which God has said he will act, but we don't know what we're looking for. Certainly, we don't believe it's in an infant child who is the son of God. And so it catches them by surprise. Jesus then and now will always catch us by surprise. And yet we have to wrestle with that. When we are confronted with Jesus, when we encounter him, how do we respond? What do we do? And so they, I think, um, pause for a minute and they say, Jesus, 
what's your address? Where are you staying? It's the question they ask him. They don't even answer. They, they, they don't have an answer to his question, what are you looking for? And so they say, what's your address? Where could we find you? On the one level, it's kind of an odd answer, right? Kind of an odd response. And yet I think they hit the nail on the head. Whether they realize it or not, they hit it exactly on the head because this is fundamentally what it means to be a disciple. Because they ask for his address, they, they ask for, for his home. They say, I don't actually know the answer to the question. And maybe some of us couldn't answer that either. We know we have things we long for, but we're not quite sure what they are. Sometimes our deepest desires are elusive and they're hidden from us. And yet they know there's something about Jesus where if they stick with him long enough, those answers will be forthcoming. And so they say, Jesus, we don't actually know, but we're going to stick with you. So we want to go wherever you're going. And so where are you staying? What's your address? Where can we find you? There are entire books of the Old Testament that are dedicated to the building of a home for God. God's people have had this longing since the Old Testament days to have a place where God will dwell, where they can, with predictability, say, that's where I can go to encounter God. Even all the way forward in the gospel stories, the Mount of Transfiguration, when Jesus stands there transfigured with Moses and Elijah, Peter, what does he want to do? He wants to build a home. He wants to build tents and say, let's capture this moment. This is something significant. We want this to be something we can come back to. We want even, God, your glory and your nearness to be predictable. We want it to be something that we can uh, rely on time after time. And so well, let's build a home. Let's bottle it up. And yet, what do we see in Jesus? He doesn't say, I'm, I'm staying at 46 Broad Street. I'll be there whenever you need me. No. Jesus' answer is come and see. Jesus' answer is, you will see as you come with me. Somehow the answer is found in following. That's a fundamental truth of the Christian life. The answer to these questions we ask are found in the act of following. As we follow him, we begin to see who he is and how he answers those questions. Someone I was reading this week about this verse, they said, Jesus' answer gives no information, zero information about where he's staying and where he's headed, and yet it invites relationship, which has always been terrifying to me. I'm doing much better with facts because facts uh, don't talk back to you and they don't tell you what to do. They're predictable and reliable. You can come to them again and again. And so I've spent much of my Christian life, frankly, trying to collect up as many Christian facts as I can. And I've always been intimidated by the invitation to relationship because invitation into relationship requires vulnerability It requires us actually letting go of control, which is a really hard thing to do. However you're wired, you love control. I know it because you're human. We love to hang on to our control, and yet to follow Jesus is to let go of it. We let go of outcomes. We let go of our comfort. We let go of things that feel predictable. And yet, as we do, we find the answer to that question. What are you searching for? What are you longing for? And these are really good things for us to ask, I think, because we sit here today and we leave and we say, what does it actually mean to follow Jesus in 2020 in Atlanta, North Atlanta? What does it mean for us to actually follow him, to come and see as he says? Because come and see, you can interpret that a few different ways, right? In some ways, that's the kind of language someone would use if they're trying to sell you a timeshare condo at the beach. Like, come and see, no pressure. You can walk away at any time. And there's something to that, maybe. Like, best understood, we do not want to twist your arm to follow Jesus. The Lord does not coerce us into relationship. He draws us with his love. 
And yet, the invitation to follow needs to be the actual kind of following that he invites us into. And so he says, come and see, come and follow me, and you'll find a way of life, a journey, a purpose, a destination that is shaped and defined by the cross. And so the life that we find is only found through an act of death and us learning to die to ourselves and our loves and the things we desire, that that is actually the nature and the shape of this invitation. And if we're not real about that, we will never actually find the Christian life. We'll find some substitute for it. Because the invitation Jesus gives is nothing less than the whole of our lives. It is full allegiance in every aspect of your life and my life. And if that sounds demanding and overwhelming, it's because it is. It will ask all of you, and it'll ask it of you, the whole of your life. And so, and this is where I want to begin to wrap up. If that is true, there's no way in which you and I can do this in isolation. It's simply too big of a task, too big of an invitation. You will never live the Christian life as it's meant to be lived if you do it alone. As Americans, that's hard for us to hear because we do everything alone. We are always, first and foremost, individuals. And we then choose the groups we belong to, whether we like them or not, and kind of size them up. But never would I forfeit my individuality. And yet to be a Christian is to say, this thing we're doing right here, this is what it means to follow Jesus, not in isolation, but as his people, with the church, with his body. That's the gift of the church. There's many things you can do on your own as a Christian. You can listen to worship music on your own. You can go on YouTube and on podcasts and find much better sermons than this one on your own. But there are things that you can never replicate on your own. This meal we're about to come to, this meal is something we can only do when we gather face to face and say, Lord, we believe you are uniquely present when we gather as your people. That's the gift of the church that he shapes us and he molds us. And actually, we find who we're meant to be. All of our personal stories, it's not like they're washed away, but they find a greater purpose, a greater meaning when they're tied to the whole, the whole of what it means to be the church. I'll give you an example, a couple examples. I went to the Atlanta Symphony last night. Woke up this morning feeling very cultured. (laughs) Someone gave us tickets and it was tons of fun. And yet my favorite person in the whole of the symphony was the percussionist. Because the percussionist, at least in this piece, was really into the symbols, had lots of you know, those big symbols that they crashed together. And while the violins and the oboes and the brass and the strings, they're all just like going to town, you know, doing this thing, the percussionist for five minutes just stands there in the back with the symbols, just standing and waiting, still waiting. And then his moment comes and and if you're falling asleep, it wakes you right up. And it's dramatic and it's breathtaking and spellbinding. And then he goes right back to where he was. Just hanging right here, holding my symbols. Five minutes, everyone else is playing, he's just doing his thing. And yet it wasn't weird. Like no one was like calling him out, like what's with the symbol guy? Because he had a part to play in the hole and it was beautiful. If he's in his bedroom alone with his symbols, standing in silence for five minutes and then from the other room you just hear a crash. That's weird. It's a strange thing to do. It doesn't make sense on his own. And I think a lot of the time we spend our Christian lives like people in our bedrooms with symbols, thinking this is a grand thing that I'm doing and I'm going to crash it together and it'll make perfect sense. He probably practices in his room. Like you need to practice, get that sound just right. 
But that's not the full purpose for which that symbol was made, that percussionist was made. Similarly, um, growing up, I was told I should never learn to play bass guitar because you can never play bass by yourself. That was like the reason I shouldn't play. Um, never, you know, realizing like bands are, you know, a thing you can do. Um, so I passed on it because I needed to be alone. And yet I think that fed something of our individuality. Maybe we should all go be bass players, go be percussionists, because it reminds us our purpose, our mission is only found in the whole. And actually how much more beautiful, like how much more satisfying and rewarding for that percussionist to have that moment surrounded by this symphony. How much greater is that than just in in private isolation, having that moment. That's the gift of the church. We learn what it means to join our voice to the symphony, to the beautiful music that God is telling. And all the things we do that maybe then feel kind of odd on their own, all of our devotional practices, our traditions, our music, the things we do as Christians, maybe they are best understood or only understood when it's in the context of the church, when we do life together. As we wrap up, I'll give you one other example. I was in England last weekend. If you were here, you would have heard this. I had hoped that I could slip away unnoticed, and yet Chris left that out of the bag pretty quickly. Um, I went to England to watch soccer, I'm not ashamed to say. (laughs) And when I planned that trip, January 12th was a very quiet weekend. It wasn't the second Sunday of our new season, a new chapter together here on the north side. And and yet Chris very kindly said, you know, go, you know, keep a trip, I'll, I'll take the service. So I went to watch soccer. If you weren't here last week, I'll fill you in a little bit. Uh, I have an irrational affection for an English soccer team called Everton Football Club. It's a bit like loving Georgia Tech when Georgia football is really good. (laughs) That's kind of the plight of an Everton fan. They're in Liverpool. They're the other Liverpool team that no one cares about and no one knows about at all. And yet I love them, irrationally so. And I've loved them for years. An English friend of mine helped me choose them years back. He said, you know, this team's had more Americans play for them than any other club in history. Uh, At the time, Tim Howard was their goalie, who, around the World Cup, you may remember him, kind of a a star of American soccer. They have an Anglican church literally on the grounds of their stadium, and I said, that's all I need to hear. (laughs) I'm in. Uh, And so I followed him for years, religiously, but in total isolation, complete isolation. Like, like, who of you is an Everton fan? We have have Clint's an Everton fan, um, which I love him for. We have two. God bless you. Um, it's a hard life. Most of you are not, most like, it's a, in Atlanta, there's not just like thousands of us where you just bump into each other every day. Uh, and so it was a very isolating experience. Yet slowly it began to grow. I convinced my brother to share in my suffering with me. So he joined and we started watching games together, found online supporter groups. You, know, you get the idea. This individual experience kind of grew into something more significant. And so last weekend was a really beautiful thing because I went and it was like concerningly moving, I would say, concerningly moving how moved I was when I saw tens of thousands of other fans all in the same place cheering for the same team. It was like the greatest two hours of my life because you realize what I thought was a a, a very strange thing to do actually has a home. It has a destination. Uh, I've been living like a percussionist in their room, just clanging those cymbals. Uh, And so finding that, it was like finding your people. It was like finding your family, finding you belong. Spill out of the game was the most, uh, they won, which they never do. They won. I mean, it was incredible. Uh, Spill out into the uh, the local pub. Um, Actually, I have a photo. I I couldn't not show you this. So this is us uh, in the pub. 
meeting all of the locals who were uh, floored, could not believe, speechless, that we would travel 3,000 miles to see such a terrible team (laughs) play soccer. So much so that they bought us a round of drinks. We were taking selfies like we'd known each other forever. I met them two minutes before. Um, but it was like everything you want it to be because it's like this is, this is what it's for. This is where this leads to. This is the fulfillment of this uh, fandom. And so I come back home and I'm kind of isolated again, but I cling to that moment. And it's a really silly example. You can kill the photo. It's a really silly example because it's just soccer. Like it's just, it doesn't matter. It really doesn't. And yet it's very easy. Like you all understand this example. It's very easy for us to give our hearts and our devotion to things like sports and yet totally miss the most important stuff, the stuff that actually matters. And so we'll maybe have a little bit of devotional life in private, but this thing that we do, we think, well, I don't, I don't do church or I'll, I'll do it when I get around to it. I'll kind of fit it in. Uh, it, we don't see this as the, the culmination the, that everything in our life builds to our meeting the Lord Jesus in his word, in this meal with his people. And so we get distracted and we love other things. It's even possible in the church to be very churchy and to love things other than Jesus. Sit with that this week. You could be a very religious person and yet not be filled with the life of the spirit. Church I served years ago, as Anglicans, this is a temptation. Years ago, I served a church and a family joined it. And at the newcomers meeting, I said, why are you here? And the father, without missing a beat, he said, I love England. He said, I love everything English. I'm an Anglophile, which I love England. Like I do. I love the royal family, even Harry and Meghan. Love them all. (laughs) But like the reason they joined our church was to be more English. I was really concerned for the well-being of their soul because that is a terrible reason to join a church. Uh, I don't think any of you are here. Like, this doesn't scream royal family, this thing we're doing. So that's probably not the reason why you're here. But ask yourself those questions. Why are you here? What are the things that you're pursuing? Is it just because you really like the music? Like, Sindhu's great and enjoy the songs. Uh, You're looking for a date and maybe you'd find someone in church, safe and reliable. Uh, You love the bagels. Your kids love the bagels. It's a breakfast you don't have to plan. You know, like, whatever it is. And none of those are necessarily bad things, but we need to ask ourselves, like if Jesus says to you today, what are you looking for? How would you answer him? As best you can, with as much self-awareness as you have of your own heart, the depths of your heart, how would you answer that? What are you looking for? When Jesus asks us that, our only answer should be you, Jesus. We're looking for you. And so we say, where are you staying? Wherever you are, that's where we want to be. Even with our doubts and our fears and our confusions, we know you will help answer them and shine light where there's darkness and heal our wounds. And so we want to be where you are. And so we're going to come and see. We're going to follow as you lead, trusting that even where it means we die to ourselves, that's how we find life. That's how we find purpose. And we do it together. We do it as his people. And so if you're a guest, this is kind of a new season. This is our third Sunday as a church in this space. But this is an unapologetic invitation to be a Christian who takes church seriously for your sake and for ours because we need you. And we as a people need to follow the Lord Jesus as his people, not in isolation, but as his body. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, may that be true of us in this new season. We long to see you, to be with you. Would you take our fears, our doubts, our concerns, Would you replace them with faith? 
with an unshakable belief that you have the words of eternal life. Where else can we go? And even when we don't see the way, we cling to you and believe that that light will shine and that a way will be opened before us. Lord, help us to be patient with one another, patient with ourselves, as you make us ever more into the likeness of your Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Amen. As you're able, would you please stand? Thank you so much for listening to today's sermon. My name is Trip Prince, and I'm the parish pastor here at Trinity on the north side. At Trinity, our mission is to be a people growing into Christ's likeness. You can learn more about Trinity and get plugged into the life of the church by visiting us online at atltrinity.org. God bless you and have a great week.